From Fresh Air Studios in Plymouth, this is In Conversation With, the podcast from Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce. With special guests, Lindsay Hall of Real Ideas. And I went to Sussex University because I was pretty into left-wing politics and I thought this would be great. This is the most radical university I can find. (laughs) And Suzanne Sparrow of the Suzanne Sparrow Language School. I actually took a bus into Plymouth the next morning on my own and found the place in complete devastation, not knowing whether my family were alive or dead. Hi there, I'm Stuart Elford, Chief Executive of Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce, and welcome to another edition of In Conversation With. This part of the podcast is Chamber Chat, where I get to talk to a well-known person from around our city or county and find out a bit more about them. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Lindsay Hall. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, Stuart. Lovely to be here. Now, I looked at your bio and it's very interesting. It says you are a Nesta Cultural Leadership Fellow, an INSEED graduate, a Fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, trustee of Kerno Arts Partnership and Plymouth Culture, a member of the Plymouth Growth Board and one of the Wise 100 Social Enterprise Leaders. So what do you do on a Tuesday? <laughs> Lie down in a darkened room, I think, after all that. Some of these go back quite a long way. Mm. So the Nesta Cultural Fellowship was actually back in 2006, I think. And that was an amazing experience to be able to go and spend three months in North America, basically meeting lots of interesting people and finding out about, I suppose it was creativity, social enterprise, you know, all the things that I do a bit of now. How do I get to do that? I want to go and get paid to travel around doing this. Well, you have to apply for things. I mean, there are actually some quite interesting fellowships out there yeah. you know not at the moment obviously but uh, no. things like Winston Churchill and all those other mm. things so yeah go for it so I once I don't know if it was rudely or it wasn't meant rudely it was meant actually as a compliment introduced you at an event to someone as the queen of social enterprise <laughs> because you seem to be involved in everything <laughs> what's going on I'm not involved in everything but I mean I think we're how to describe it it's sort of luck and also collective ambition as you probably are aware Plymouth is and we would definitely claim the first social enterprise city in the UK and we are definitely a centre and a hotbed for social enterprise Mm. and that's pretty straightforward it's like it's great to make money but what do you do with the money and in essence what the social enterprise movement is all about is saying let's balance that with social impact and purpose so how do we make sure that in this city everyone benefits and we share it out a little bit more fairly and maybe we don't send quite so much time on Amazon where the money just disappears off to um, (laughs) far reaching places yeah but not not staying local. Not staying local and also not actually contributing back to how do we make sure that everyone in this city earns a good wage, lives mm. in a good environment, is able to access all of the things that probably you and I are lucky enough to take for granted. Yeah, and we are very lucky. I should have started with the main way you do that is through Real Ideas, of which you are the chief executive. And I was going to call it Rio, but I'll get told off, won't I, because you've rebranded. We have, and it's not a massively big thing, but one of the things that we... <laughs> it's great, isn't it? You sort of work these things out as you go along. We use the acronym RIO, which is sort of wonderful for everyone who knows Real us. Ideas Organisation. Real yeah. Ideas Organisation, exactly. But what we then sort of worked out was, and we did actually do a survey, we did mm. a bit of an online survey. And <laughs> what came back was lots of really positive, lovely comments about people loving what we do. But also people saying sometimes they were a little bit confused. And we thought, well, actually, we don't really help ourselves, do we? Because at least Real Ideas or Real Ideas Organisation gives people a clue that maybe we are interested in good ideas and really making them happen and change whereas Rio you could well be forgiven for thinking it was a big city in Brazil yeah if you didn't know so that's what it's about it's about clarity and it's about trying to I guess create ways that more people can join in because essentially what we're excited about is we all have the potential to make change happen and do things differently and Mm. I know you and I've talked before about all the collaboration with the chamber and others and other businesses and that's when change comes it's because we're all involved interesting enough trying to do my research to think about how to describe real ideas i found that you have the coolest strap which is we solve problems and create opportunity so how do you do that Well, we partly do it because we've got a really brilliant team of people. So we now employ oh, around 100 people. Do you? Wow. So it's quite a lot of people. And I mean, lots of them in the city, but also lots in Cornwall and further afield, mainly in the southwest region. It's about having a lot of really good people doing a lot of good stuff. But in essence, what it is, is about how can we work 
with people and our experience is that pretty much you ask anyone whether it's a five-year-old or a 95-year-old if they can identify something which actually they think isn't really fair or isn't really right and they sort of want to do something about and actually when you start to have those conversations Mm. then often they come up with some really interesting ideas and for some reason we live in a society where often people don't feel empowered to actually take that step and then make something happen so that's sort of what we do in a nutshell where we've got to now is that the sort of probably three major strands of how we do that. So the first is how we work with young people, particularly unemployed young people, and help them find their way mm. to the right future for them. Mm. And that obviously is about work, but it's also about who they are as human beings and how you recognise what you're good at and what you love and what matters to you and try and find a way for that to be the sort of anchor mm. for how you live your life and how you earn a living. And we do that with hundreds of young people every year and it is extraordinarily rewarding because mm. of course they come up with the most amazing things. Yeah. And yeah, you sort of unleashing energy really. That's what's yeah. going on there. And then we also work with lots Lots of people of all ages who want to start things, they want to start enterprises, they want Mm. to start social enterprises, community businesses, small businesses, immersive technology businesses now. And again, wonderful because you sort of get little goosebumps when you sort of go and go, okay, somebody's here, they're doing it. And actually during lockdown, one of the things we did was to open up our facilities, our bakery and things like Mm. that. So we've now got wonderful new companies who are making bread and chocolate and selling Cornish eco products and you name it. So that's super cool. And then the last one is buildings. And that's in some ways probably the most visible thing we do. So obviously we've taken on heritage buildings and found ways to bring them back into life and to be purposeful spaces for the 21st century, which again, hugely rewarding. And all of them work as social enterprises. So again, they're not underpinned by revenue grants. They're about how do you trade and make them into enterprising centres in their own right. Yeah. So you've got premises in Royal William Yard, I know. I've been there. And Denport Guildhall, Mm -hmm. both of which serve really good food i've noticed i think if i worked with you i'd end up even fatter than i am (laughs) but you've got a new ish but it's soon to be launched project the market hall tell us about the market hall because i haven't been yet but i'm looking forward to the invite because it sounds amazing yes and you need to come down yes we are beyond excited about the market hall so this is devonport again and absolutely wonderful that it is in devonport anyone who knows plymouth if you go to duke street in devonport which is not far from the devonport guild hall and very close to the dockyard there was a beautiful grade two listed market building covent garden-esque building complete hidden treasure which again most of us have never been in built in 1856 and yeah it's been a long project but essentially we've managed to raise 7.6 million in order to renovate it add an extension and turn it into what we are describing as an immersive technology center with a 15 metre immersive dome and the numbers of people who we've been able to show just little trickles of people going in in the last few days and every single one of them is just like awestruck because it is an extraordinary experience to be in this dome which is a screen essentially it's all a screen all the way around you and sound and to be able to see space content or different types of things it's very magical but the purpose of it is actually a regeneration purpose and it's actually about how do we as a city make visible a set of talents skills expertise that we have in creative technology so Mm. virtual reality augmented reality dome content 360 filming all those sorts of things Mm. which is going on out there you know it really is going on out there but is invisible to most people and probably really close to my heart really invisible to so many of our children and young people yeah and so we still have so many children and young people growing up with no idea of the careers that they could look forward to so part of the market hall is a cluster a creative business cluster businesses there getting on with all sorts of exciting stuff sparking off each other doing all that wonderful stuff that creative clusters do Mm. for businesses around the world part of it is learning so we're working very closely with the university plymouth college of art city college other learning providers Mm. to integrate opportunities for students to come and actually make content for the dome and use the facilities and rub shoulders with all the businesses while they're still studying and therefore hopefully Mm. get them into the whole mindset of what the businesses they're going to start and the jobs they're going to do and then it's also very much a community facility and we're absolutely loving conversations with 
with all the local community around the market hall. So we're definitely going to be running things like Saturday Tech Club for Kids and Dome of the Day workshops and local screenings and all sorts of things because it's their thing too. And I think it's been quite a long while since right. Devonport had real cutting edge technology at the heart of the community it obviously did back in the day but yeah. now this is the 21st century moment where actually that can come and be open and visible for everyone the most exciting thing for me about that is about inspiring young people so they come in and they see as you say i'm passionate about this fact that young people aren't aware of the opportunities that are out there and i find that really really sad I've mentioned this to you before, but we had the tall ship Pelican come to Plymouth. We got a bunch of young people, a lot of them from relatively underprivileged backgrounds, go out on it. And afterwards, 75% said they either wanted a career at sea or in environmental sciences, and they didn't even know they could do that before. Mm, exactly. Uh, and mm. this statistic that's found around Plymouth, about 15% of our youngsters having never been to the ocean, that is criminal. That's absolutely criminal. There's so many exciting things going on in marine autonomy and science, environmental science. It's great that you're putting that in the heart of the community that is most traditionally unlikely to connect with it mm -hmm. absolutely and i think is that interesting thing for some reason as a society we've separated out education from work from community and actually what we're trying to do with the market hall is bring it all back together you're absolutely right with lots of good food and coffee because <laughs> we need it <laughs> we need Fuel it of champions yes but to do it in a way which is about connections because you and i will know this more than anything it often is about the networks you have and the confidence you have to go and contact someone and and actually my experience is people are always willing to help yeah but actually you've just got to be able to go oh hang on what about could we do this what do you think yeah. and those networks are so important particularly at the beginning of people's careers you know i'm absolutely looking forward to the market hall being buzzy with lots of people in there doing that so it is open we should say Come on down, everybody. Exactly. Uh, I will be there. Well, no, don't, I don't want to put people off. I will go there at some stage. <laughs> Lindsay will definitely be there. Yeah, yeah. No, we will. And you are all really welcome. So do come. Yeah. yeah. You do an immense amount of work with inclusivity, with helping those who haven't had a chance. What drives you? Not real ideas. What drives Lindsay? Because of all the people I've met with senior leadership positions, and I joked at the start that you're the queen of social enterprise, you don't appear to have as much ego as many leaders I've met have. <laughs> so what drives you to do this? I don't know. What drives me? I suppose it's a number of things. I mean, I have a really terribly low boredom threshold. So I love new ideas, new ventures, new possibilities. And I don't know, I just have a lot of energy. So that sort of sense of actually, yeah, let's do it. Let's try it, you know, definitely drives me. I think at a personal level, the most rewarding things are always where you see other people growing and developing. And so I suppose to have been able to grow a business, which actually is all about that, is hugely privileged. So I feel incredibly lucky. I did always have a mantra, actually, when I left university, I had a mantra, which was to try and spend as much time as possible doing things that I enjoyed, had value, and I thought I was reasonably good at, and as little time as possible with anything else. And I've sort of managed to make my working life that. And for me, that is always about actually seeing things happen and it's creativity that's what it yeah. is but it's creativity in a sort of across this campus of buildings and into all sorts of weird and wacky ventures and ideas and you know all that sort of stuff well i've always thought that if it wasn't taken by a slightly famous brand just do it would be a good slogan for you still to come suzanne sparrow of the suzanne sparrow language school brexit i really didn't vote for coming out not because of my business or anything to do with that, but I looked back and I thought, you know, we've had 70-odd years of peace and what are we going to do now? We're going to absolutely shred Europe. Follow the Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce on Twitter at Chamber underscore Devon and search for us on LinkedIn. Make sure you don't miss out on future episodes. Hit subscribe now. So you mentioned university. Where did you start? What's your degree in? Where did you go? Because you've got the, the least explanatory LinkedIn <laughs> profile of anyone I've interviewed. I know nothing about you. Where okay. have you come from? So where have I come from? Go way back to the beginning. So I was actually born in New York. Were you? Because my dad was working over there for British Information Services. And I came back to the UK on the Queen Mary when I was tiny. And then I grew up in London and I went to Kibbrook Comprehensive, which was absolutely an eye-opener because my mum 
and dad have always believed in fairness and equality and that sort of thing. So they were they believed that my sister and I should go and have a comprehensive education, which I completely support. And that was probably quite formative because I was with a lot of people who absolutely did not have the same chances in life that Mm. I did. I made lots of friends and it was really interesting, quite tough at times and also inspiring. And I had amazing teachers who were absolutely interested in, I suppose, what we would now call change and positive futures Mm. and all of those sorts of things. And then I had a gap year and (laughs) then I went to Sussex University because I was pretty into left wing politics. And I thought this would be great. This is the most radical university I can find. (laughs) (laughs) So I arrived and I think there were three picket lines I could choose not to cross. I thought, oh, wonderful. And then, of course, I found relatively quickly that actually it was a bit of a veneer and the teaching at the time for the course I did was not that great and all of those sorts of things. And that politics, which is what I was studying, actually was some sort of theoretical investigation into history, really. And interesting as that was, that was a bit frustrating because Mm. I was sort of a bit more of a doer. So I (laughs) then went to see a wonderful careers person who I'm eternally grateful for, who said, "Okay, so I think what you actually want to study is social policy because you're interested in that connection between Mm. how things work and doing stuff. And she said Bristol University is the best place to do that at the moment, run by a professor who'd written a brilliant book. So I said, "Okay, what do I do? So she said, well, write to them. So I wrote them a letter saying this is who I am. This is what I don't like. This is what I do like. If you do what I like, can I come? (laughs) They said, come and have an interview. I turned up and the man said to me, hmm, OK, well, yes, he said, you're pretty interesting. So, um, right, well, you interview me, which was ah, that's interesting. really interesting. And again, with hindsight, you think, OK, that's so interesting that people are turning the tables and asking yeah. questions. And at one point I said to him, well, how do you choose students? And he said, oh, well, we pretty much go for the oddballs. So I thought, OK, that's probably all that's right. That's me then. then. <laughs> that's no, I didn't cool. mean you. That would be me. No, no, no. Well, yeah. it, is, it was exactly me. So then Bristol University. And I did a lot of student community action while I was there. Mm. So I did a lot of work in the communities of Bristol. And then I left uni it was Thatcher's Britain and I thought I don't want to go and work in a sort of institution or follow the graduate Mm. path or anything like that and by that time I was living on a boat because I like sailing and it was the only way I could sail and live so I thought right okay so I moved my boat to East Anglia which was where I could get free mooring and (laughs) basically then found a way I was really interested in how to communicate all the interesting social action that I'd been involved in which was under the radar so essentially what I ended up doing was learning how to make films and videos and then I set up a production company and made a mixture of videos and bit of television and then it ended up being interactive Mm. video it was the early days just before the internet so I did all that for I don't know 15 years set up a company it was fine then got to the point where the company was growing and it was a bit like do I want to end up managing a production company I don't know I do and then a job came up the advert said are you an alchemist I was like, oh dear, but have a look at that one. I wasn't really looking for a job at all, but that was entirely irresistible. That was what brought me to Cornwall. It was something called Creative Partnerships, which was a government scheme, new Labour government scheme, which was about creative industries, education. How do we get creativity back into education? Bizarrely got the job. I have no idea why they appointed me, but anyway, they did. And I was literally given a mobile phone and basically access to a million quid and told to make stuff happen which was just joyous through that i then met the person who's the other co-founder of real ideas who is in bristol he was doing the same scheme and anyway we essentially spun out and created real ideas and have gone from there i honestly did not know you're a founding creator of real Ideas. yeah 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 you see you're very modest and you also (laughs) suffer from that imposter syndrome thing don't you because you said to me oh i don't know why they chose me (laughs) i know why they chose you yes i suppose so i mean it was just one of those interesting things that when i (laughs) i went down and it was the interview was in Truro and we had a sort of death by sherry evening oh. with all the other candidates and then the panel the following morning and there was that sort of strange thing I don't know if you've ever done these where you look around the table and you suddenly realise that of the six candidates four of them were entirely embedded in the creative industries in Cornwall right. there was me and one other person who were external 
And so it was one of those really interesting moments when getting offered the job and then deciding to take it and then realising that obviously the first thing was to work out how to make friends with all the with people. With the people you've just beaten at the panel, yes. <laughs> Who were seriously annoyed with me, quite a lot of them. So yeah. that was a really interesting thing. But in some ways, I always find those challenges are often the most interesting because they actually make you have to think really creatively about where you go next and how do you because I'm a firm believer that you have to take people with you so I absolutely didn't want to just sort of ignore them or be at odds with them I wanted to find a way to make it okay we did it was okay we got there well you're clearly still a relationship builder and very good at it do you still sail do you have a boat I haven't got a boat although I do still sail I now have a whole series of friends who've got boats that's the best thing to have I know I'm boats sticking very with expensive that. they are super expensive and I love them and maybe maybe one day but at the moment a bit busy so I'm sort of actually thinking really well, just doing what yeah yeah <laughs> just the odd thing so actually for me going sailing with lots of other people is great yeah. Yeah, I've got a long-term plan to have a boat, but it's long-term for both financial and work reasons. Yeah, a lot on there, a big commitment. As they say, the two best days of your life, the day you get a boat and the day you sell it, because they are huge commitment, aren't they? Yeah, they are. But it is still wonderful, and I still love it, and I still yeah. swim most days, and I love the water. So that's And where cool. were you in Cornwall, is that right? Southeast the... Cornwall, so yeah. I live in, yeah, down Derry, which oh, is lovely. great. So it's a really nice place to Do live. Do you have in. a view? Great view. Oh, I'm so jealous. I'm so jealous. It's a lovely, lovely part of the world. Of course, I'm speaking from Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce, where Devon is clearly the better county, but a close second Cornwall there. We'll close allow second, close second, yeah. My mm. colleague Kim in Cornwall, he and I would argue that one backwards and forth, but actually, aren't we lucky to live in this part of the world? So lucky, and I know Kim quite well as well, and I think, apart from arguing about cream and jam and scones, actually, the relationship between Cornwall, Devon and Plymouth as a really strong, connected and different set of spaces, I think is vital because I don't think any of us succeed unless we can all work out how to work together. And it's really important that we do. And whether you call it the Great Southwest, whatever you call it, that sense of there's a geographical sense to that as an area. And if we can find a way of maintaining the fantastic, independent, creative, entrepreneurial, actually very values-based set of people and businesses that exist in this part of the world and doing it in a way which can also increase prosperity then we'll have cracked it well i'm passionate about that too and that's why i chair british chambers of commerce southwest which is cornwall devon dorset somerset and business west trying to bring some sort of connectivity trying to join these things up trying to get the right amount of investment in our region which we so deserve which has not been easy with the geopolitical structure i don't want to bore our listeners with that but we have a very strange situation of leps that are in what feels to me slightly contorted areas you've got the politics of the southwest is another thing which i can't go into because i'm apolitical but it's a constant frustration so really trying to join it all up is hard but i guess that's what you and i have in common is we're really passionate about joining it up and joining up funny you should say earlier the education piece with the work piece because of course the recent white paper has said employers voice must be front and center who knew that the employers are actually important because they're the ones that know what skills they need amazing and also a lot of the thing that we see is that getting that triangle i suppose isn't it between employers young people and education providers everybody wants to do the right thing but quite often timing structures they just sort of get out of kilter and you can see people falling through the gaps all over the place and i think it's hugely important and i I think it's really exciting and we've certainly been talking a lot I mean I know you have to people like City College about okay how do we make that work mm. and how do we make that voice of all employers work yeah. isn't it because it is we're also living in a time where employment is even quite a complicated terms because there's yeah. a lot of people who are in the gig economy a lot of people who are freelance and all the way through to the Babcocks and the mega mm. businesses and getting all those voices heard I think can sometimes be quite difficult but it's absolutely vital well that's what we're trying very very hard to do is to join it all up as best we can you've very cleverly taken us away from you and back to work again <laughs> but I'm determined to find out just a bit more about you before yeah, I go, go on, then. what do you want your legacy to be when will you say do you know what i think i've achieved what i wanted to achieve there are you one of these people who's never going to hang up your boots you're just going to keep yeah i think i can't imagine the concept of retirement i find i don't really understand it mainly because i've always been able to pretty much spend a lot of time doing things i like that i'm reasonably good at my father is 87 nearly 88 now and he is busy writing a book and doing all sorts of things and i see his levels of 
energy and sharpness and yeah. commitment to still being involved in everything. And I think to myself, well, I suspect I've inherited a bit of that. I think you have. And I think your version of retirement will be that you just no longer get paid for doing all the stuff you do. <laughs> quite possibly. Probably quite get possibly. involved in a whole load of exactly. stuff. I suppose just wrap up. What do you love about our region? And what do you find frustrating? Oh, I just love being here. I cannot imagine living anywhere else. And mm. I think it's a mix, isn't it? It's definitely something about the willingness of people to make the lives that they want. That's what I feel a lot here, that much more than in other parts of the country, the sense of slightly bolshy independence, which is great. And a lot of people saying it's about the place. And so that never feels difficult to have conversations about what else can we do that might help people who are struggling Mm. a bit more, you know, that sort of thing. So that I absolutely love adore the environment who would live anywhere else you know we've got the most Mm. brilliant oceans moors amazing places to live fantastic cultural heritage and frankly we are far enough away from london that we sort of (laughs) don't get too dragged into all of that so i love all of that i do get frustrated by some of the artificial divides you know the fact that the tamar is in any way a barrier which it definitely is at times to making things happen i find that deeply Mm. frustrating i find some of the difficulties of i guess it is to some extent getting westminster to take us a bit more seriously i do think there is still a little bit of an attitude of oh yeah it's lovely down there we go on holiday Mm. and not really wanting to go no there's some really serious very important industry here and a lot of industry that is about green is about digital is about health is about all the good things but i'm not sure that it's really taken that seriously and i find that frustrating i do too but i genuinely sense that's changing it sounds like i'm name dropping but many years ago i asked the governor of the bank of england you know how do we get sort of investment into our at the time i was talking about plymouth alone i said our city and he said there's nothing more powerful than a place that believes in itself and starts investing in itself and look at what's going on here we are really beginning to be known around the world you know maritime autonomy you know smart sound the national marine park and marine biological association and plymouth marine laboratories and all they're doing but we've also as you say got all the renewable energies it's a really exciting time and place it is it's hugely exciting and that's what i also feel and talking to young people and my children who are in their 20s about the sort of sense of actually where's a good place to be and definitely a few years ago they would have gone and now it's much more hmm, okay actually there's an awful lot going on here yeah yeah we might want to go at some point but maybe we don't need to rush away and a lot of young people are feeling that a lot of young people are coming because they're coming to university and they now want to stay and i think that's really important because you get that yes. energy you know beginning to get that traction and certainly i don't want to go anywhere and i hope you're not going to go anywhere thank you for all the wonderful things you do um, you do do a lot of very very important work in the city particularly around inclusive growth about joining these things up and that is really appreciated we have to end there but Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us and i think i'm going to have to interview again sometime to find out more about Lindsay rather than her work <laughs> but we'll try that so thank you Lindsay hall thank you Stuart. that's fantastic and now chambermaid introducing business owners from across the southwest Hello there and welcome back to part two of In Conversation With, the Chamber of Commerce podcast for Devon and Plymouth Chamber. I am absolutely delighted today. I've been looking forward to this for ages to be joined by our longest serving member. I think that's the politest way to say it. Suzanne Sparrow of the Suzanne Sparrow Language School. I say longest serving because I don't want to be rude and ask, but you're sort of approaching a milestone birthday? Mm, Not far off. Dare we do what we should never do of a lady and ask? Well, I'm 96, but I'm nearer 97 now. You're nearer 97 than Mm. 96. Yes. Bless you. So you've been involved with the Chamber for years, and I'm going to come back to that. But I understand you started your early working life as a secretary and you moved to Newton Ferrers after your home was destroyed in the Blitz. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. Yes. Tell us about that. Well, the war was anticipated because my father was in the Navy, Mm. had retired and was recalled. Ah. So we knew that war was inevitable. Mm. And really, when the war started, I was still in Plymouth High School. I was then 15, yes, coming up to 16. And all the vibes were that we would be in the front line, being Mm. Plymouth and Devonport, one of the prime naval ports, of course. So we had to prepare ourselves. 
And my father really was pretty good in organising us at home, if you like. Mm. But of course, we had no idea quite that the bombing would start. You see, there was minor bombing almost from the start. Right. And that had been forgotten. But it was so minor compared to what happened later. I can't imagine anyone describing bombing as minor. It's like having an operation. You know, they say that a minor operation is something that someone else has because if it's yourself, it's important. How was it minor? I mean, it destroyed your home, didn't it? Well, that was in the Blitz. Yeah. You see, I think we got... I don't know if the word could be used to a possible bomber coming over occasionally but then of course when the blitz really started in the 1940s we still went to school we still had a comparatively normal life it was quite curious but of course there was severe rationing which my mother had to cope with Mm. but we went to school as if nothing was happening in a kind of a way except that, of course, we were practising going down into shelters and things, Mm. and we had to wear gas masks just in case. Yeah, that was the big fear, wasn't it, that gas would come? Yes, that Mm. would have been absolutely terrifying. Yeah, of course, it never did, thankfully, did it, on our our soil? No, no, no. no. And where was your house when it was bombed? In Plymouth City Centre? No, no, it was actually in Hartley, the area of Hartley. Okay. And it was a very nice residential area. But the Germans obviously worked out a system whereby there was various districts night by night. And my father then knew that ours was the last district that hadn't been bombed. So he organised that my mother and myself would actually, he took us out to Newton Ferrers an hour before the bombing started. And he stayed in the house with one of my sisters and my married sister lived in Tor Lane, which is just abutting onto yeah, Fengrave. I know it, yeah. And a landmine dropped on the house opposite where we lived. Next morning, I came in by bus, and I'm often wondering how the services managed to run. But buses were still yeah. running, and people must have been out clearing streets overnight. Yeah. It was incredible when you think back on it. And your father and sister, were they okay? They were okay, yes. Thank goodness. And my married sister, who I say lived just abutting onto, she was okay with her husband and young baby. But both my sisters suffered great trauma and it took many, many years for them to get over it. But as I say now, I actually took a bus into Plymouth the next morning on my own and found the place in complete devastation, not knowing whether my family were alive or dead. Wow. I stood in the middle of all the rubble, obviously crying, because I was only 15, 16 then. Mm. And out of the rubble came my father. And he just said to me, Sue, we're all right. We're all all right. Phew. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And so you moved then permanently to Newton Ferris. To Newton Ferris, yes. But you didn't stay away from the danger. You joined the Wrens, did you not? Well, that's right. Very young. (laughs) To recap a bit, at the age of 16, now the school, (laughs) Plymouth High School, decided to evacuate the children. Right. And my parents decided that, no, they wouldn't allow me to go. So that's why the secretarial course, before taking a job in St Albans Estate Offices in Devonport. Okay. Where, again, that was very, very devastated, that part of Plymouth. Close to the dockyard. But anyway, whilst there, you see, I woke up to the fact that if I didn't do something at the age of 17, I would be recruited possibly into the land army Mm. because recruitment age, you know, obligatory then, was 18. So I volunteered to go into the Wrens. And you needed your father's permission, did you not? Because you were too young. That's right. And he gave it? He wrote it. He had to write this. But he wrote it providing I went into the Pay Corps, which, of course, he was in. (laughs) Ah, very clever man, your dad. (laughs) 
Yeah. So I thought, no way. So I volunteered then to go into the boat's crew and we were trained to go to sea yeah. alongside the ordinary sailors. Because you were trained as a coxswain at 18, weren't you? In charge of a boat? Yeah, at 19. 19? Yes. Wow. Yes, yes. Was it exciting? Did you love it? It had its moments when it was fun, mm-hmm. but I would say a lot of it was quite dreary because we were doing the harbour boats that could be anything we were taking around. But when we had the young men, of course, I mean, that was a totally different thing. Suzanne, what are you trying to say? (laughs) We had boyfriends. The Royal Naval Engineering College was then inside the dockyard and just on the fringe. So our boyfriends were there. On tap? On tap. Men on tap? Absolutely. Fantastic. (laughs) After the war, you're in Newton Ferris and you worked in a marine laboratory, did you not? I did, yes. After I came out of the Navy, I refreshed my skills, you know, office skills, if you like. So I worked as a PA to a jewellers to start with. Mm-hmm. Very, very nice job for a girl, actually. <laughs> and then one day I just decided I'd had enough. So I found a job by looking in our local post office window. Right. And the research laboratory were looking for typist, tea maker, whatever you like to call it. Mm. I went to work in that laboratory for 10 years, actually, I worked there. And there was a very distinguished marine biologist took your eye. Well, there was a young man there who'd been drafted down from Cambridge, actually, to work on underwater paint for the Navy. Right. And the Navy was having a very bad time with the aircraft carriers, particularly in the Far East, Mm -hmm. were being, well, attacked and not surviving. Mm. So the Navy actually took over this research laboratory and they worked solely on the underwater fouling and corrosion Mm. for these ships. So I joined, of course, after the war, (laughs) but this young man was kept on because it was the worldwide paint company called International Paint. Yeah. And they really were worldwide. Yes. So in actual fact, then <laughs> I was only there in 1948. Oh, so you met this guy in 48 mm-hmm. and he became your husband's husband. Yes, right? yes. Yeah. Yes. And how many children? Well, after 10 years, two children. Yeah. Hillary, who was born in 1958 and Raymond born in 1960. I'm sure they'll love you for announcing their age publicly, <laughs> but no, they won't mind. No, no, no. They're far too old now to worry about that. To worry about that, yeah. (laughs) And you started the language school, what, 1977? 77, I thought, yes, I needed to get a move on. and. (laughs) Because you hadn't done much, only the Navy no, no, and, well, you know, that sort of fighting thing, in the war know. and all that. Yeah, yeah, apart from that, not done a lot. <laughs> well, that's true, you see. I always missed the end of my education, you see. Right. Because 16, you don't have any exams, you don't have anything. You come out with just a good basic education. Yes. And I'd always loved the English language. Possibly would have gone on, I really don't know. But anyway, you see, working in the research laboratory, people from abroad came and visited. Right. And some of them had very poor English. And I used to think, oh, really, there's nowhere that we could advise them to go to anyway. Yes. And we had young students staying, supposed to be friendly with my children, but that didn't really work. And I thought, there's no language school in Plymouth to help them. Better do something about it. (laughs) And hence the Suzanne Sparrow Language School. That's right. Fantastic. And do you know, you told me something when we were just meeting outside in the foyer, and I didn't know this. I had always assumed that you must speak several languages, but you don't. Don't speak a single one. Well, you speak English. English, Well, that's right. As I said, two two languages, English and bad English in my case, yes. (laughs) The Suzanne Sparrow Language School was actually to teach English to foreign students, not foreign languages to local students. Well, I had that wonderful idea that that might be a good idea, but it didn't work. Did it not? No, because... Well, it's still going. Oh, yeah, no, no. What I meant was the foreign <laughs> language side. Ah, I see. I set up courses for businesses to be taught Italian, French or whatever. I see. Mm-hmm. And it didn't work because the businesses here wouldn't spare the time. And so that side of it, you see, I had to phase out. 
Mm. which meant that I could concentrate then on the English as a foreign language. I see. But you started a business in what was, forgive me saying, but for a woman to start a Uh, business in the 70s was quite something, wasn't it? Yes, the bank tried to stop me. The bank tried to stop you? Yes, yes. Let's not name them in case they're still going. No, no, yeah. Because you were a woman? Oh, undoubtedly. I mean, the person who interviewed me was a member of, I could tell you this because he's no longer alive, (laughs) the manager. I was talking to you know, and I explained exactly what I was doing mm. and you can't have a school without a building is mm. what I felt anyway and by the time I got home this man had rung my husband and told him tell her to stop so no. of course that made me all <laughs> determined you do not strike me as the sort of person who takes you can't or, or don't as a good thing no well not if i think it's probably a good thing to do but you got over that somehow. oh yes oh yes goodness me you know it's only the bank <laughs> yes yeah, only the bank but it took me 10 years to find a building in plymouth because plymouth council i don't know maybe i could say it Plymouth Council weren't exactly pleased with the idea of a language school. Really? They weren't as avant-garde as you, were they? They were not quite as forward-thinking. No. (laughs) But I bet they're glad you did now, when you think what you've done since. We've brought 40 million, possibly more, into the economy, and it all stays here. Yes. You see, anybody else who runs a language school, the money usually goes away. But ours has stayed here. Well, that's funny you mentioned. You've obviously got a good commercial brain. And even back then, you joined the Chamber of Commerce. I joined the Chamber of Commerce. It's one of the first things I did. I was introduced by a very nice naval man called Captain Honeywell. Right, yeah. And he was the chairman at the time. Yes. And he introduced me. And then I also joined and I became a founder member of the Marketing Bureau in Plymouth. The Plymouth Marketing Bureau, yeah. Yes, and that was highly successful. Unfortunately, it didn't last. But it's a thing that actually should be remembered because it really was a force for Plymouth. Mm. You see, it was a combination of business and the city working closely together. Well, I can tell you, Sam, now, finally, that's sort of happening again, the public and private sector working really well. We've got a great relationship with the council and with Destination Plymouth and Mm -hmm. the other destination management organisations around the county. So it is joining up. If you'd like to feature on a future episode of In Conversation With, send an email to info at freshairstudios.com. But you were pioneering back there and you joined, I think, in 78. And then Mm -hmm. 10 years later, what happened? You became... Chairman. Chair. Chairman. (laughs) And do you say chairman? Well, I'd say, so what does it matter? I don't care to hoot whether it's male or female. So chairperson or chair or chair... Chair... You were chair. I was chair, And you formed the international division. Well, I realised during that year... I mean, it wasn't a very popular move within the chamber to have a woman, I can tell you. But you see, the secretary at the time was also retired Navy, a man called Peter Wood. And they were puzzled as to who could take over as chairman. And then he looked at me and he said, what about you? (laughs) I said, well, what about me? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, he did see your ability and talent then, so it wasn't total exclusion. No, I suppose not. I suppose not. But anyway, atmosphere in the chamber was still very, very mixed because it was an old boy network, you know. Well, back then it certainly oh, was. Yes. And, oh, and it yes. was a perception. I've kind of inherited a bit of that, to mm. be honest. Yeah. And I've had to work really hard to mm. make us mm. more fresh, more diverse, right. and not look like, what do they call it, pale, male and stale. <laughs> we don't want to look that, do we? No, 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 no. No. And the international division, I'm really grateful. I mean, genuinely, I'm personally grateful to you for that because our international trade side is still going and it's a big income stream for the Chamber. It enables me to do what we do. Yes, yes. Well, uh, the year that I was in the chair, I realised that they had to move. They had to think in an international way. And so that next year, I had time to form the international division, you see, mm. which, of course, I made myself chairman of because they met in the school to save money, really, as much mm. as anything. And then that year, Audrey Cook, who was then the secretary, very, very, very good secretary, mm. she'd been there some years, 
she actually organised the travel side. Mm. And so we took people with the European MP of the time, came with us and organised the European side. We went off to Brussels and then on to Strasbourg because I said, we have to know what they're going to do and what they're talking about. Mm. And so it was a highly successful visit, really. Yeah, it's left a fabulous legacy. We are apolitical in the chamber, you know, this, mm-hmm. so we don't take sides and we don't make no, political no, no, statements. No. However, <laughs> you must be perhaps not the biggest fan of Brexit, I guess. Brexit, I really didn't vote for coming out, not because of my business or anything to do with that, but I looked back and I thought, you know, we've had 70-odd years of peace and what are we going to do now? We're going to absolutely shred Europe by coming away from it. It was one of the most valuable things, though, of course, at the time, we were all horrified in a sort of a way of mm. the things we had to let go, which were very, very British. Mm. I did actually go around and support some of our local MPs on anti-Brexit. I was very upset, really. Well, I think you had a right to have a strong opinion about it because of what you've been through, what you've Mm. seen since, Mm. through the commerce side, through your international trade side. And I don't make a judgment call on it either way because we are apolitical, genuinely. I have to Mm. work with whatever situation we have. But that must have been very, very frustrating for you. And I heard somewhere that in the 1990s, did they not try to change the articles of association of the chamber so that you couldn't stay because you were, (laughs) dare I say it, too old? In the 90s, you were too old, and here we are in 2021. What happened there? Well, there was a very, very nice chairman who came in, Tony Holland, who's Mm -hmm. now Sir Tony Holland, actually. And he, being a very well-known solicitor in the area, thought it was time to update, if you like, the Articles of Association. And the main thing was that he put forward to the committee, it was time that 70 was the age for retirement from the chamber. So, of course, I heard this, and unfortunately, I was slightly older than 70. (laughs) So I sort of made my feelings known Mm. without saying too much about the fact that... (laughs) Then it was you were slightly over. Yes. And did they change it? Yeah, I mean it hasn't changed as far no. as I know. No. Well I've recently updated our articles actually right. but, to, but to make them less gender specific yes. and yes. deliberately take out any reference to age. Mm. But clearly you stayed, so yes. it must have yes. worked. Yeah. And thank goodness you did. We've got another twenty seven years of you since then. <laughs> or twenty what is it, nineteen ninety twenty one years, yes. Yeah, since then. Quite a long yeah. yeah, and that's great. I've never been to your new offices, you know. No, the new ones up at Derriford. Yes. Where we've been there two and a bit years. Well, you're welcome any time. Honorary guest. Thank you. You must come up (laughs) and visit. (laughs) And speaking of honorary, you got an honorary degree in 2009 from the University of Plymouth. I was so taken aback and astonished, and I'm so pleased to have it. It really was wonderful. Actually, it was for the educational side of it. Well, isn't that great? Because you said you didn't feel like you'd finished your education, and here you are with a degree. Well, that's right. You see, all my family has degrees. Yeah. And I was the one that didn't. Mm. And then my son actually is a doctor, That's right. a scientist. Yes. So I rang him one day. He was working in South Africa and said, oh, hello, Dr. Sparrow speaking. And he said, no, that's me. And I said, no, it didn't. It's me now. <laughs> so you are a doctor. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Brilliant. Well, well, well deserved. And you're still working. Oh, yes. Well, you see, with the lockdown, the actual building that we have had to be closed. Mm. So unfortunately, we had to make redundancies and things. And it meant that we had to leave what I call a skeleton staff. Mm. So the teachers are able to teach online. So that was okay. Hilary, my daughter, who's the principal, came home and used my office because I had an office in the house right right from the start, which I'd maintained. So all we had to do was transfer the telephone number. Okay. Now the school is open, and every time the school was opened, I took over (laughs) as the office girl. You're the office girl. I'm the office girl. But you're actually the chairperson of the company, aren't you? Yes, yes, yes. Well, it's great. Do you still have a passion for business then? Oh, yes, yes. 
I love it, you see, because when the phone rings, I don't know which part of the world I might be speaking to even. Isn't that brilliant? Oh, no, I keep my hand on the pulse. Yeah, well, you've embraced technology. I mean, you email me. And I don't say that in a funny way, but I didn't embrace email when it first came out. But you are, we're not going to mention the age again, but still, you know, keeping up with technology. Oh, yes, yes. I must confess that some of the technology does fox me sometimes because I think, why don't I do that so much easier to have written it? Yes. Well, I still handwrite meeting Mm. notes and things. Mm. I've still Mm. got a notebook that I scribble in. But we're getting there more and more. During our lockdown, it it made me realise how much paper we had in the office. Oh, that's true. And when we refurbished, we got rid of it all. And we haven't missed it at all. You know, everything's digital now. It's all online. Why do I keep a printout of a meeting from two years ago that I've got on the computer anyway? Anyway, so we've tidied up. And the pandemic has been a difficult time for your school. Oh, very. I hope you're doing all right. But did your early life and everything you went through, through the war, through the Wrens, through all that, did that help, do you think, with you coping with what's happened over the last couple of years with Brexit and with the pandemic? I think it's made me realise, actually, how fortunate we've been. Mm. You see, the lockdown to me, because of advancing age, has probably been a saving grace in some ways. Right. Because as long as I can work at home, I can come into school then when I'm needed or if there's something interesting going on. But it's very, very difficult times at the moment as soon as travel is lifted then we shall be more normalized I well, think, you know it? the chamber of commerce nationally is fighting for that well, we of course are locally but nationally we are fighting for opening right. travel corridors and fighting for your industry well that yet yeah, our industry actually has been neglected by the government mm. it's designated as possibly tourism or educational so we've fallen between the two fallen between two stools the language schools have mm. fallen between the two so i'm actually just writing a letter to boris are you well copy me in and i will add the weight through british chambers of commerce because i know they support you i know they've brought it up with Mm. bays time has rushed by we've nearly finished but i've just got to ask you so you you know i'm saying you're a pioneer you were a woman in business in the Mm -hmm. early days you were a young wren you've done so much for this city do you have heroes or should i say heroines yourself are there people that have inspired you historically that Mm. made you want to step up or are there people now you think good for you i see what you're doing you're really pushing the boundaries or breaking that glass ceiling perhaps i find this very difficult to answer because as far as i'm concerned my parents' generation were the heroes. That generation, you know, went through that First World War. They had a horrendous time. They picked themselves up and there was only 20 years between the two wars. Mm. And then they faced all the blitzes and they still picked themselves up after mm. that. And there was no support from anywhere for any of those people, you know. And I always think every time now in November when we have the armistice services, I remember those people and sometimes I've given a little talk perhaps in the church and say, remember, it's not our generation, it's the previous ones that have built up the lives that we live and Mm. don't forget it. Mm. You know, we have remarkable people still in this country Mm. and I'm a strong supporter of the Queen and what that lady goes through is incredible. Mm. I should say she's probably my hero at the moment. Similar age, isn't she? I'm older than she She is. is. You're older than the Queen. I forget (laughs) how old she is. She's 93, 4 or something. I think she's now 95. Oh, she, yeah. 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 It's funny you should say that about that getting up and that starting again thing because I think it was another great lady. Was it Mary Pickford who said, failure is not falling down, it's staying down. And I think that's really important about knowing you can just get up Mm. and Mm. keep going. And that's that's done you well. You inspired you. Well, get up and go and don't sort of sit around and wait for somebody else yeah. to help you because that isn't life. No, it isn't. There are lots of people who need to be told that. <laughs> <laughs> There's a great expectation from a goodly number of people that somebody else will have to pick sort, you up and yeah. sort you out. Well, it's doesn't happen. Out. It doesn't happen. Yeah. You have to do it yourself. And you've yeah. done it for yourself and you've done it for women. You've been mm. a pioneer in that. 
I think Mahatma Gandhi said, you must be the change you want to see in the world. Well, you've changed yeah. the world. You've been a pioneering female business leader, chair of the Chamber of Commerce and years then. before anyone else, of one of the most senior chambers in the world. Ours is the fifth oldest in the country and the sixth yeah. oldest in the world. Really? Yeah. And you chaired it. Mm. And you're still chair of a company, still well, going well, strong. Yeah. And I hope to be interviewing you again for many more years to come. And thank you so much <laughs> for coming and sharing your story. I really appreciate it. That's very nice of you to ask me. Thank no, you. No problem. Thank you, Suzanne. Thank you very much. In Conversation With is produced by Fresh Air Studios. Full audio production services for podcasts, live links, and corporate communications. Visit freshairstudios.com. Presented by Stuart Elford. Produced and engineered by Paul Philpot. Edited and mixed by Martin Burgess-Moon. Production support by Lisa Hartwell. Copyright Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce and Fresh Air Studios Limited. All rights reserved.